We have to be able to think about what we ought to do in a particular situation while also thinking about whether or not that's a good situation to be in at all. <laughs> and those aren't mutually exclusive. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where we could bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden. And I am Troy Polidori. And this week we are tackling the second patron chosen topic from the last poll that we ran on whether or not you can be an ethical CEO or uh, what is it, the bougie class trader. Um, bougie class trader. Bougie class trader. So, Troy, what's the angle that we're going to be taking on this one once we get into it? Yeah, so this may be a bit of an angular or circuitous way of addressing that topic, but uh, I know of a paper by a philosopher named William Shaw who teaches at uh, – San Jose State University, and he's written a lot on Marxism and business ethics, which is a weird, hmm. weird uh, confluence of topics to be addressing, right? Usually you don't think of someone writing on those two topics together. And so he has a, a relatively celebrated paper called Marxism, Business Ethics, and Corporate Social Responsibility, um, where he tries to make sense of the idea that you can in, in some sense, accept a, a broadly Marxist orientation as a critique of capitalism and also think that there's something to be said for the domain of business ethics as it's uh, practiced in like the um, Anglo-American uh, sphere of, you know, business departments and sometimes philosophy departments teach that too. Uh, and the concept of corporate social responsibility, um, which we can get into we talk about it. I figured we could, you know, read this paper, talk a bit about the arguments in there because there's some good stuff and good, um, good like discussion points to go through, and then maybe with that use use that discussion as an angle to think about what it would mean to be a bougie class trader or whether <laughs> it's possible to be an ethical CEO. I don't know. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think that works, man. I think that works. Too. It's funny. So we were talking about it, and I was looking through my notes, and there was. Um, a scholar that had come to the University of Sydney. She's at the she's at UTS, which is the um, technical university. Of, what's it called? University of it's called University of Sydney Technology. University of Technology Sydney. I think University of Technology. Fuck, I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's it. University of Tech. What the fuck? UTS. That's what I'm going to call it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Uh, her name's Sarah Kane. It's K-I-N-E. And she's written a lot about corporate response, corp, uh, corporate social responsibility in relation to like the emerging platform economy and these, these platform, um, and like the gig economy and these new kind of like platform corporations and how they are different, um, than like the old school model of corporation and how they present new challenges for even the possibility of corporate social responsibility. And I was just looking through my notes today and so there might be some stuff that I can draw out of that as as well. So since she um, has written a lot in that, also she writes a lot in like the conversation. If people know what the conversation is and you're interested in kind of thinking further along these things, she's at the she's in the business school at UTS. So yeah, so yeah, hopefully we'll be able to to tackle the um, the topic. Yeah, that's good because the the shop paper was written, I believe, in two thousand eight ish or so. So mm. there's certainly been some important changes 
um, with the rise of platform uh, of platforms since then. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, because a lot of them work in kind of like the legal gray areas and change rules. Like Uber, is it a is is how how do you kind of regulate you know um, supposed independent contractors? Although they're not really independent because they're dependent because they don't dictate their wage. And so there's like a lot of like these legal gray areas that are kind of like outside that kind of like push the laws. Um, to kind of like force to follow their own models. And um, there's a lot of interesting things that kind of come from these uh, these disruptive technologies, I guess, as they, they like to be called nowadays. But uh, yeah, so we'll get into that for sure. Yeah, that sounds good. But before we do any of that, the first thing we got to do is the shitty minutes. For those who don't know, the shitty minute is the part of the episode where one of us rants and raves about whatever it is that's grinding our gears lately. So Austin, let's cut you down. So I don't know how much you paid attention to it. I'm sure you saw a little bit of it. I didn't really pay much attention to it at all, except that I noticed a little bit of what I would just call like crazy fucking obsessive, maybe hysteria surrounding it. But the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, did you pay attention to this at all? Um, I was just telling a friend that like, like, I think yesterday that I tried to make it a mission to know as little as possible. <laughs> While it was going on. Um, but yeah, it seems like it was always kind of in the ambient, uh, like informational ambient sphere for the last yeah. however many months or how long it's been going on. But yeah. then the second that it ended, it was just like a like a deluge, right? Where mm. everyone's got takes and I have no idea what these takes mean and what they're referencing. So I I'm not that it's over, I feel like I can I can I can hear a take on it and and maybe form an opinion. So I'm glad that you're gonna provide this rather than somebody else for me. I mean, I'm not even going to talk about my opinion on it because, I mean, I feel like there's so much out there and the last thing we need is another fucking pan being smashed in the fucking kitchen of like the clamor of madness, you know, um, that's what it sounds like to me. My head is like, ah, ah. <laughs> so you want to do meta discussion? <laughs> yeah. Like my thing is more this, like, I think it's really, really weird that we are so obsessed. I mean, I can't, I don't know how much I've talked about this on this podcast, but we are so obsessed with celebrities, right? Here's the thing. Hey, do you get, do you get, um, do you get like starstruck when you meet someone that's like an idol of yours? I can't remember the last time that that happened. So I'm not really sure. <laughs> Zizek. <laughs> oh, that's right. I did meet Zizek. Yeah. That was, that was a long ass time ago though, dude. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but like, do you get like, I mean, did you get a little nervous or anything? I guess maybe. I don't know. I try to avoid. I try to avoid people in general, let alone famous <laughs> people. Yeah, I um. So I don't. I don't get starstruck at all. And and if I and if I ever get to that point where like I'm meeting someone, I get nervous. Then I know I'm like, oh shit! Like, what's going on in me that makes me so nervous in this instance? Right? Like, but it like doesn't Wait, happen. Do, do you have an example of this? I mean, I met like Val Kilmer. Um, who was like my favorite actor growing up, you know, like for a long period of time, I, I was obsessed with Val Kilmer. So like as a, as a young, like, I'm like, oh, but that's what a fuck I mean, obsessed with Val Kilmer. It makes it sound like I had like pictures on the wall. That's the thing is I don't really get obsessed with people either. <laughs> so I say obsessed. I feel like the words coming out of my mouth don't actually match the reality. Like 
I really liked Val Kilmer. He would have been like one of the guys, you know, like like Tom Cruise when I was a little kid because Top Gun was my favorite movie. And then it was like Days of Thunder and fucking Far and Away. I was, I was into those things. Right. But like I just don't have that like I'm. But you liked Far and Away as a kid. <laughs> oh, dude, I loved Far and Away as a kid. I love oh, so, the adventure, man. He's and th- it's all about getting that that land and that house with that creek. You know, that cabin by the wood, cabin <laughs> oh, in the woods. Oh, this makes a lot more sense of, yeah. <laughs> I was so into it, man. I was so into it. Just riding a horse bareback, getting out there in the middle of the fields, just going. Yeah, man. Um, adventure. Yeah, that's that was that was it. But I just, I, I don't really have the, like, obsessive thing. Like, I never got obsessed about, like, um, uh, like, a, like, a, like a band where I was, like, like, I'm obsessed with them. I really got into their music. Like, like when I was, what, 15 when I, when I went to my first concert? MXPX? Well, no, yeah. it was, I was going to say Blink-182, but yeah, like MXPX, I was like really into MXPX when I was like 13, right? Like really into them, like to the point where like I listened to their album like on repeat. But and maybe if I was 13 and I met MXPX, I would have been like a little bit starstruck. But I just, for some reason, I, I, I never really kind of tipped over into like the obsessing about like a singular person or a singular band too much. It was always kind of like a, a flavor of the month sort of thing. Right. Um, like it was never really like that long lasting and I never went that deep. I don't think. So I just don't really get like starstruck. So I just don't really, like, I don't really give a shit. Like, like that's part of the reason why I think like when people talk about celebrity news and celebrity gossip and celebrity marriages, like I have zero investment in any of them. Like, I don't care. Like, and I don't, and sometimes I wonder, I'm like, oh my God, are you just fucking selfish and callous? And I'm like, I, maybe I'm a little callous in the sense that it's like, I just <laughs> think of celebrity culture as being this really highly fabricated kind of like bullshit thing that's forced down the public's throats, you know, which then ties me to, to the, the, the trial, the trial, we'll call it. The trial was, I felt like it was just forced, (laughs) forced down our throats, right? It really was, man. Yeah. And here's the thing. There are some serious like legal implications that I think will probably like could be drawn from this. And even, even if material that weren't materially, that weren't the case, um, like collectively, psychically, there's obviously important fallouts from this, right? That that people who are victims of abuse are going to going to rightfully feel some sort of um like preventative or some sort of some sort of imposition whereby they won't be able to as freely express themselves for fear of you know being accused of defamation or something like that right so there's clear which is which is also a material material concern too i don't want to act like that isn't a material concern but i mean like in the terms of like i'm not sure like how much this is going to set legal precedent for the future i'm sure it will i'm sure some motherfucker in the future you know i know shia labeouf is getting taken to court for his um for his abuse allegations um and so, like, I'm, I'm sure his lawyers will be like, hey, maybe we can use the fucking defamation angle. I mean, obviously, it's a I don't know if if theirs is a, a civil case or a criminal case. The one for um, what is it? Is it FKA Twigs or just F, FK Twigs? I'm not familiar. FKA Twigs. FKA. Yeah. Formerly known as. Yeah. Oh, it's she doesn't go by that anymore. 
Oh, no, that, that's what FKA stands for, formerly known as Twigs. Oh, that went over my head, didn't it? Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, very good. Very clever. Okay. Clearly, I am not <laughs> hip. My God. Um, but so, Her music is excellent, by the way. Her music is excellent. Well, it's like everyone read this week was going off about Big Thief and they're like, shitty take on on israel which is just like a recycled take but i'm like i don't even know their fucking music i i've whatever. Oh, they're they're incredible they're released my favorite album of this year so this has been kind of a bummer week for that but they did the, it was that they but this here's the thing you know they released the exact same fucking press thing two years ago when they did the exact same thing right so yeah i saw you post that <laughs> everyone's everyone's mad at them now and i'm like yeah but everyone's it's the same thing so i went off and i, I had to listen to their music so like i don't even know who these people are but the fact that like a lot of my friends who are really into music were talking about them made me be like oh maybe i should know these people <laughs> you know <laughs> so but anyway um i just i just don't get like the obsession and the investment with celebrity and here's the thing um so many people were into this not because of like the content of the case, but I think so many people were into this because they were invested in like the pirate guy, you know, and the fact that their celebrities made this an issue that is a, a, a domestic abuse issue that gave it such high profile status, which will have impact both potentially materially, but absolutely like psychically as, as a community will, will have an impact over like like how it is that um, abuse victims are able to express themselves in the future and how how the legal system um, is either on the side of uh, um, those who are accused of um, abuse versus those who are the abused. You know, I'm sure this will have impact on that. That's not really what I'm talking about now. Like that, that's been talked about a lot and, and I get it. And there's some serious stuff there. My thing is just more like I just don't understand why people give so much a shit about Johnny Depp, Right. Like, I just don't, I just don't care. I really don't care about the guy. Like, I really do not care about the guy. He's fine. Like, he was, a, he was. He I sucks a guitar. I'll, I'll he say what? That. What'd you say? He sucks a guitar. <laughs> he sucks a guitar. You don't like Hollywood vampire or whatever the fuck they're called? What are they called? Dude, it's, it's, it's pretty cringe that he's decided to, to like mortgage his fame. Not only by, by potentially being an asshole in real life. I don't even know the story to, to know what exactly is going on there. But like. To be try to like be by himself into rock stardom, like it's just embarrassing, man. Come on. What, well, it's his, it's a super group, man, because Alice Cooper is the lead singer. Yeah, I mean, Alice Cooper's like a legitimate musician with decades of of music making. Uh, he didn't buy himself into that sphere. <laughs> and I'm not even yeah. an Alice Cooper fan, really. So yeah, 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 yeah. Um, no, I just I just don't get I just don't get like um, obsession with celebrity thing. And here's the thing is I felt like I found myself having to care. Like I felt the pull because everyone else was caring. And I felt like, man, this must be something important, you know? And so there's like a fucking YouTube video that comes up that's like bombshell dropped in the case. And you're like, oh, well, maybe, should I? You're like, should I click? And then eventually, <laughs> eventually you fucking cave in. You know what? Basically my shitty minute, I'm mad at myself. That's what I'm saying. I'm mad at myself for caving in to the fucking shit. That's probably what I'm ultimately mad at. I can complain all I you, want you, about it. Yeah. Yeah, I can. You play. caved in. You you started a little coke at a party. Yeah. <laughs> it was pure pressure that did it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got into a really long, like, eight hour discussion about all the the evidence and 
Uh, I've started a blog, is what I'm saying, um, <laughs> talking about the, the, the court case. No. Um, but no, you know, and so you you think like, oh, my God, it must be. And so, I, you know, you click on it because it's like a three-minute video, and there's like no bombshell. Like, there's nothing interesting that happened. Like, it was, it was like, I don't know, a look. Like, she gave, Amber Heard gave a look in her eye, and they're like, oh, my God, she, she did this thing. Or he, like, he, like, talks to his lawyer at one point, and they're like, look at them flouting the rules of the court. And you're like, dude, I just stop trying to make this more of a thing than it is. And I feel like in all of the sensationalism, as much as we might want to try to, like, to like extract importance from it, I feel like actually it won't be taken seriously in maybe the way that it should have been taken seriously as just being like an issue of domestic abuse uh, and and how that relates to defamation or whatever the fuck it is, right? Um, like there, there, there is a way for this sort of court case to be taken seriously. But because of the celebrity, because of the celebrity around it, it made it into just a fucking spectacle. And I don't know, man, I just... Uh, I find it gross. I found it really gross. And part of me just doesn't really understand it. And um, it just felt like it was being force fed down our throats. And, and, and maybe if there is something that's important to be taken from it, I just wonder how much it's actually going to last because of like the spectacle of celebrity that's kind of going to wash it all away, you know? So I don't know. That's kind of my shitty minute. It's not really a very formed shitty minute. It's just a blah, but yeah. Yeah. The shitty minutes don't always have to be, they can be formless, you know? Oh yeah. Um, take different shapes. Yeah. I don't want to extend the metaphor cause it's kind of gross. Um, <laughs> so here's, here's the thing, dude. Um, if someone wants to make the case that there's going to be legal precedent that comes from this, it's really important and all this kind of stuff, then go for it. Like yeah. I, I'm willing to hear that. Yeah. And, and by willing to hear that, I mean, I'm not willing to hear that cause I don't care. But, <laughs> um, if someone else is willing to hear that, I'm not going to like judge them for it. Right. Yeah, tell yeah. them not to like, that's totally legitimate. To have a discourse about just I don't want to be near that discourse. Um the the whole like, so you know, this is a big celebrity case and it's in the news and everyone's talking about it. So we need to sort of have some good takes on it because it's gonna like inform the way that people act and, and self-censor and stuff like that. Like that can all be true, and it can also be entirely constructed by the act of talking about it. So it's like the only reason why it could have that sort of larger cultural impact is because we won't shut up about it. Let's stop <laughs> talking. Um, which is fine. Like if you think that's an important discussion to have, then then, that, then that's totally fine. But sometimes we, we talk about these things like, oh yeah, it's just going to have this impact. So we need to invest a lot of time and effort into it. It's like, well, I mean, if you're if you're interested in it, then that's fine. Like there's no problem with that. But also, we could we could not, and it might not have a cultural impact by not focusing our attention on. It. Like, there's something about there's something about the ethics of attention that I think are under discussed, and it's kind of a, a it's almost like a, a a parasite on all sorts of different discourses in contemporary life, where it's like if we just thought a little bit more about the things we should and shouldn't pay attention to, um, maybe we do better but also maybe we wouldn't be crazy or feel crazy all the time about everything you know yeah yeah that's it and it's, you know, it, I, it's the craziness it's it's it really does feel like a fucking like mass hysteria you know and and maybe someone would say that's just because you don't get it because you don't understand the stakes of this because this does have like serious and maybe that's true totally. maybe there's a part of yeah. me 
I have yeah. no idea. Maybe that may very well be true. Yeah, maybe there's a part of me that has like a serious, just like experiential blind spot there. And um, so I got to be aware of that. But but also it does feel like so much of the intensity of emotion surrounding this is because of like the cult of celebrity that is driving it. So I'm not sure that it it can be just simply distilled down to like some sort of kernel that it's like, but if only you understood this kernel, then you would get it. Because like, yeah, but I just don't know that I believe that things exist in isolation like that. And I cannot divorce this entire experience from the fact that like the cult of celebrity, like so many, I mean, first of all, there's a lot of bad faith people that were like obviously really invested in this because they were like, hey, like, I, I'm anti me too. And so this case proves that women can be assholes too. Therefore I feel vindicated, which is basically like, like you have just been a bad faith actor and you might not actually care about the legality of this, or you might not actually care about the humans involved. You just want to feel vindicated in your own like biases, which probably needs to be understood. Right. And then there's so many people who I think they just wanted like the pirate guy to win because they secretly want to fuck him. And so they're like, well, I'm on the pirate guy's side because they're obsessed with the pirate guy. And that to me, I think is also in there. Right. And I think that's kind of weird. And so sifting through all of this, because there are some people who are going to take more of like maybe that analytical, like, hey, there is a kernel of importance here that we need to extract out of all of the kind of like madness, right? All of the celebrity madness. And that is legal precedent, um, issues for abusers in the future, you know, whatever. Like that stuff is is maybe the kernel. But so much of the stuff that's been online has just been like a fucking horny love fest or a bad faith sort of seeking to uh, bolster my own anger against women or something like that. That it just makes it like this nasty cesspool online. And in one sense, I'm glad it's over. But in another sense, I'm angry at myself that I gave into it a little bit. Uh, and in another sense, I think it's just madness. And sign up for my Johnny Depp, Amber Heard blog at Substack <laughs> um, and you get all my thoughts on this. So, yeah. yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I think you're right, dude, to focus on the the celebrity culture angle of it because like that's the real kind of underlying sort of fundamental problem there, right? And this happens, I think, both on, on various political spectrums and social spectrums. And that there's there's something about focusing on famous people as kind of like moral exemplars or or maybe failing to be moral exemplars. And that's like the main reason why we follow their story or their narrative or whatever. Mm. And it's 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 one bad moral formation to do that. But also importantly, celebrities aren't normal. Like they don't live normal <laughs> lives. And no. they don't the the way that we should think about um the sort of moral situations that they're in are just not the kinds of situations we're likely ever to be in. And so if you're going to make a, a good faith moral judgment, and by judgment, I don't mean like the negative sense of judgment. I just mean forming beliefs about, you know, what's right and wrong or whatever, um, are going to be totally different given that their context is totally different than that everyday regular people like us, right? So it's just even for well-meaning libs who like spend their time thinking about like celebrating like morally righteous actors or whatever, and then denigrating those who are not like, that's just, I don't, I don't know that there's much value in that. And I, and I, I like, I'm part of it too. I'm kind of invested in the idea that Keanu Reeves is really awesome as like a person. And I would be bummed <laughs> out if Keanu Reeves turned out to be a huge dick. And I really shouldn't be because he's not a normal person and he doesn't face normal situations. And I don't really know 
um, what his situations are like. I only know very, you know, public actions that he takes, which are never good fodder for for like, you know, uh, accurate moral judgment or whatever. So I, just the whole idea of, of focusing on celebrities as moral exemplars seems in various ways to be fraught. Yeah, I like, agree. Talk talk about like how you treat your people in your everyday life. That's the stuff that ultimately matters the most. This is the only thing that matters. Other stuff matters too. But um, a lot of focus on like celebrities and voting. Those are like the only two things that matter morally in life. And that yeah. just seems very, very untrue. Yeah. And I also want to say too, like I think part of this, it isn't just that like it's like bemoaning um, like the phenomenon that – that something like this court case got so much attention. It's more about bemoaning why it is in a position to be a phenomenon that gets this kind of attention in the first place. That's the issue, right? And um, I, so it's it's that's that's really what I have a problem with, right? Like obviously because they are in the position they're in, and because the court case is going to have the eyeballs on it that it does, then it it probably does deserve at least some greater level of scrutiny, right? Because it's already going to be in the public sphere. So then like the critical gaze toward it is probably a good thing in some ways, considering the context. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just annoyed at the context as such. The fact that like these sorts of things become popular in the first place, right? So yeah, it's not really about this case specifically. It's about the underlying mechanisms. A hundred percent. Yeah. So Anyway, hopefully that's done and, uh, you know, I don't fucking know. I don't have any way to sum this up. Wait, does this mean we're getting like six more Pirates of the Caribbean <laughs> movies or like... No, God. Because he, he kind of got blacklisted from Hollywood for a number of years, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, to be honest, though, like I don't really remember the last few stuff like films that he'd done that were all that great. It's going to be interesting. He's going to... Someone's going to hire him and... um He's going to do something. I don't know if it's going to be like a big like tentpole kind of franchise thing for uh, for a studio. But, I mean, there'll be something that comes out probably pretty soon, you know. Well, I, I just hope he commits himself to, to Hollywood vampires or whatever. So I just don't have to care. Is that what they're called? That, that is what nice. they're called, right? Hollywood vampires? or I, That rings a bell. Yeah. Or Hollywood celebrity. Something like that. Yeah, I don't know. And who is it? Is Alice what a Cooper? What a terrible fucking name. <laughs> I, mean, well, I don't even know what the name is. But whatever it is, it's probably bad. <laughs> it's Hollywood, it's Hollywood <laughs> yeah, we, something. We, we are kind of lucky that he doesn't make good movies anymore. I know. Because we just don't have to worry about this whole, like, are you a good person if you watch a Journey Depp movie? Like, no, we don't have to worry about it. That's true. We're That's... all spared that. There's a little bit of justice in the world that we're all spared that. I know Fear and Loathing uh, came up the other day somewhere. I don't remember why, but it like popped up as oh, I think I was on YouTube and it was like, you know, watch Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or whatever. And I was like, oh, man, I'm probably never going to watch that ever again now because I just don't even want I don't even want to entertain that kind of thing. You know, it's just just like, eh, just like why? Why? It's just probably not going to happen. You know? Yeah. So it's Joe Perry's the other big name from Aerosmith. That's right. OK, so at least Johnny Depp's not like the lead guitarist. You know, I mean, yeah, obviously they're probably just giving him like, you know, it's a four chord power chord structure. And they're like, here you go, bro. And then just let Joe Perry have some fun. Do you think they let Johnny Depp record anything or does he like in the studio and they don't even have the, the switchboard on? Like it's just off and he just thinks he's recording in there. Yeah. <laughs> 
or like or no or he records and like they do playback and they let him listen and he's like this is really fucking good and it's but Joe Perry's playing in the background yeah <laughs> <laughs> And as soon as he leaves, the engineer, like, they just give him, like, a head nod. And he's like, okay, I just know that that track is delete. Joe Perry's track. Enter. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. Probably that. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get into this main segment. All right. So as we said earlier, we are um, fulfilling our obligation to our patrons who requested and voted on um, a top an episode topic that centered around being an ethical CEO or a bougie class trader. Uh, stuff like that. And so we had some we had some wide uh, latitude here for choosing a topic since that's a fairly vague description, right? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure we'll we'll try to address the, the question as specifically as we can in the midst of the discussion. But we're going to do it by uh, talking about this article by philosopher William Shaw from San Jose State University called Marxism, Business Ethics, and Corporate Social Responsibility. So... Um, I don't know. What do you think the best way is to to jump into this? Should we do some uh, some backgrounding of what's going on in the argument here? Or do you have any initial thoughts you thought would be a good springboard? Um, no. Yeah, I was thinking maybe we just kind of go through the kind of central thesis of what it is that he's arguing, and then see if we can if we can find something interesting to to tie into um, what it even means to be like what would it mean to be an ethical CEO or or then what would it mean to be like a bougie class trader? Because I have I have long had the fantasy that like, you know, like remember when the lotto a few years ago was like a billion dollars? Do you remember that? Was that like 2015 or something like that? Uh, maybe it was just the ca- – I don't remember. Yeah, there were the lotto in – is it California lotto, the national lotto? It was like a billion dollars. And I remember I was like, man, I had a fucking fantasy. I was like, if I had a billion dollars, I would make like this radical fucking think tank, you know? Um, I probably wouldn't. I'd probably just buy like cool boats and <laughs> shit like that. But in my mind, I was like, it'd be so cool where you just like set up all of these essentially like these um, like these wealth funds that that, um, you know, can can fund these like radical alternative projects and you could totally do it. And then, of course, who doesn't have the thought that they're like, man, if I was president, I'd become president. And then I'd just be like, wouldn't it be I'd, or you get like the idea that like, wouldn't it be cool if you like positioned yourself your whole life as being like a, a total towing of the line of a party political party but secretly you were like a revolutionary underneath and so you climb the ranks like obama right you climb the ranks of the democratic party and then you fucking get elected and all of a sudden you like you know you you put on the fucking che Guevara hat and you like pull out a fucking cigar (laughs) and you're like all right it's time for revolution you know like who doesn't have that thought so the the reverse of what actually is the case (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I have that. I have that fantasy sometimes. So could you not also similarly like think like, man, wouldn't it be so cool if you were just like you had a business and then that business just happened to take off and you become like a billionaire because of uh, uh, this like new impact technology that you've in- invented. And then once you become a billionaire, then you're like, all right, well, now we're going to fuck some shit up and we're we're going to do some cool shit. Or is F being an ethical CEO just like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to pay my employees a living wage, right? Like like what are the standards here that we're that we're <laughs> using to measure? Is there what's the baseline and then what's like the ideal, I guess? Yeah, I like that way of framing it because there, there's a, a a nice little sort of entryway into the discussion here is to think about those two sides of the spectrum as just being wrong, right? It's so somewhere in the middle has to be where the right answer is, right? It's obviously not the case that you can just be an ethical CEO 
by using your money to help like left causes. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> that doesn't really ever happen for good reason because, you know, like Marxism, <laughs> like vulgar Marxism, uh, as vulgar as it can be, uh, explains this fact, right? Um, that's just never going to happen. You're never going to get that money. Um, their structures are in place to make sure that that never happens. Mm. Um, but also, uh, we don't want to like go on the complete other end of the spectrum and say, Sort of like the you know the, the catchy um, idiom that there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Uh, as much as that's you know I think well-meaning and not meant to be taken ultra literally, you could take it ultra literally, and some people kind of in, in some areas do, and basically just divorce uh, study of social structures from any concern for for normative uh, and prescriptive aspects. So much so that if there is any discussion of that, they just wave their hands and are like, that doesn't belong here. Like, we can't talk about normative and ethical and moral issues here. Um, and then really what that means in the end is they are talking about those normative issues. They're just not thinking hard about them because they're implicit rather than explicit. So uh, both of those uh, ways of viewing the issues seem like they're they're importantly missing something. So some sort of integration between understanding the role that social structures play in setting the context for moral and ethical problems and, and play a large role in how we should think about them. Uh, but then also being able to talk about uh, normative issues um, as a as a dependent, but dependent on social structures for under, understanding them correctly, but also independent in the sense of you can, you can talk about these as normative issues in the end. You just have to have, you know, a lot of social context for understanding them rightly. Mm. Yeah. So one of the one of the real difficulties in addressing this is that 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 I think the majority of people who are like either Marx adjacent or Marx inspired um especially now have been really inspired by the sort of um kind of like Really by like the Frankfurt School of, of critical theory, which I think has kind of dominated how it is that we understand like the possibility for thinking other than according to the logic of capital. You know what I mean? And and so much of of uh, of people who are like critical of capitalism from within a, a decidedly Marxist perspective, they take up this this. Like, like there's an a priori impossibility of being able to, I don't know, enjoy anything as it is because it's always corrupted or to be able to, um, to be able to accept anything within the sphere of exchange because of the commodity as being the mediating force and the commodity therefore is... Um, concealing the hidden abode of production, which then produces some sense of mystification. And so therefore you have like theories of ideology and whatnot related, rooted in like commodity fetishism. And and when you really start to like go down that, that route quite intensely, it creates a sort of really pessimistic conception of of the possibilities for thought, the possibilities for even feeling and the possibilities for action. Because even like the very root of your, your affect and your emotions are viewed as being like most likely causally related to um, like this exploitative, acquisitive logic of capital, right? 
And so it, it makes it, it leads to a, like a type of despair. And, and I go back and forth on this, right? Like obviously in, in my, in my first book on Sartre, um, and in my, my, my PhD research before that, like I just spent so much time like reading about a guy who theorizes what we could call like collective bad faith, which is essentially, he talks about it. He calls it seriality, which is this condition where social reality is, mediated by these objects that dictate how and in what ways we can use them, right? These, these objects, we'll call them commodities. He calls them practical inert objects, but we'll call them commodities. They set the very orientation by which society is able to engage. And the way that it does that is by sort of creating a fractured society where people are in competitive relationships to each other, where people are other to each other, there is no sort of like mutuality, but there's um, like a fracturing or what he calls alterity. And then it also makes us like inessential. We are inessential, whereas, um, you know, the the commodity becomes essential or the institution, the firm becomes essential. But we are just kind of component parts that are fungible, that are eminently just exchangeable at any given point. And so this creates like a really, a, a really sort of dire situation that uh, that we could call like infinite seriality. And yeah, he theorizes a break from this, obviously. So many people have focused on that. Um, uh, you know, there's some sort of eruption from it. But but the reason that he focuses on the break is because he sets he sets the stakes so high and he sets he sets the condition as being so dire that the only way out of it is some sort of eruption, right? Like the only way out of this this it's more than hegemony it's it's like this this tendency towards homogeneity right because of this like this 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 like isomorphic logic of capital because of that there's no way out so it requires some sort of like exogenous shock even though like there's debate on like when he talks about the eruption is it like exogenous like something outside like transcendent like it would be in someone like Bedou, or is it something like internal like is it something in endemic right or endogenous let's say um and uh, but the point is, is that it requires like this violent eruption and so a lot of people are critical of him especially in like you know wretched of the earth he writes the preface to that uh, of fanon's wretched of the earth where they're talking about like the importance of violence and then so a lot of people think that like maybe sartre and fanon just fetishize like the violent eruptive active activity and it's like but, but that's kind of like necessary under the like radical stranglehold of the positions that they've argue, argued are kind of like the 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 first point of departure, you know? And I think once you think from that perspective, it really leaves you with very few alternatives. And from that perspective, like it's almost impossible to get out, right? Like there's no, there's no, there's no outside of capital. And so I think you really get this with like post-Lukashian theories about like capital as, as being like a, a, a system of totality, right? Where if that is the case and it either it's tending towards that or it's like actually a totality, the point is, is that how do you theorize escape? And there's been so much theorizing that tries to think about escaping. Um, and then of course, there's all these infights about like, well, but you're not grounding it appropriately or you're just fetishizing the proletariat or blah, 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 whatever the argument is, right? But the point is that I think from when you, if you start from that perspective, it becomes very difficult to think of anything other than, no, actually, it's just all going to be a big, massive, domain of exploitation and you got to start from there and i'm starting to think 
that maybe that maybe there's something not just like because I just don't want to see how capitalism really operates as a system tending towards totality, but I'm starting to wonder if there's something in there's almost too much of a front loading in that argument itself that already presumes its conclusion. You know what I mean? You you go in expecting to to find uh, totalization, and so guess what? You find it. Yeah, yeah, and and I don't know. I think that if you start from that, if you start from that perspective, well, then of course anything pertaining to something about like I don't know, can you can you find a break? So could you be a bougie class trader, or could you be an ethical? boss, you know, something, can you be an ethical landlord? Then of course, all those questions are automatically precluded because they kind of become incoherent at the outset. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's so funny because I I see an analogy here between what you're talking about and your sort of, I don't know if it's correct to say reorientation, thinking about your work with with Sartre um, and like my own work, which is in a very different sphere. Um, talking about like value theory and normative issues, but I'm working on moral tragedy. And the reason why I think thinking about tragedy in the moral sphere is really important is to orient ourselves in kind of the way that you're talking about here, where, you know, what's, what's effective and good about that sort of totalizing viewpoint um, that maybe like a Sartre is advocating for is that it's recognizing something important about, the powers of a, of a structure or a system, right? Mm. That situates what we do. And we can't just think about individual actions as either maybe good or bad or whatever, um, or sort of, you know, evaluate them in such a way such that it's, it's purely individual. And it's just at that microscopic level. We have to have understanding of, of the context and structure behind it because it might be that the structure and the context, I mean, it is, is the fact that the structure and the context is determining the conditions of that action in such a way that that may be putting someone in a double bind uh, or maybe um, sort of unjust in a really important way. In fact, usually is the case. And that's really important to recognize, right? But then you can go too far on that and end up with a kind of simplistic analysis where they're almost you almost erase the possibility of having any sort of evaluative or normative analysis of the situation because it's just there is there is no sort of uh, wiggle room within the individual's uh, control of the situation, right? It's just the structural analysis and that's basically it. And that just determines the entire evaluation. And that's that seems like it's just going too far in the other direction, mm-hmm. right? What we need is integration between the two, right? The individual level analysis and the and the social or the structural analysis. And I would say even like the cosmic analysis. Mm. Um, and the integration of those three levels to me is what we need to do to, to, to understand the full evaluative framework that we're going to use for any situation. And, you know, that's what's super important about that, even from just an individual level, not even from this like highfalutin sort of analytical level that, that I'm talking about is, you know, when you recognize the tragedy in a situation, um, you can think about what you ought to do in a particular situation or even in, in like an ongoing set of situations. And then if you recognize the tragedy in that, or maybe like the structural level that's impinging upon you, that's, that's making something unjust about the situation or the conditions of your uh, situation, then that's, that spurs you on to think about how to change the conditions of that situation. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be able to think about what we ought to do 
in a particular situation while also thinking about whether or not that's a good situation to be in at all. Mm. <laughs> and we, and those aren't mutually exclusive, right? We can talk about both of them. It's hard to talk about in both at the same time because they're very different levels of analysis, but it seems really important that, to do both of those things. Mm. Yeah. 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 So let's get into, let's get into this article and let's see if, um, if he gives us any resources for helping us to kind of think more about this. So you're pretty familiar with this text. So can you give us kind of like a, a bullet point? Like what is he essentially, what is he essentially arguing? Yeah. So he starts off the paper. I believe he was giving it, he, it came from a lecture that he gave somewhere in, in China and yeah, to a bunch of Marxist uh, philosophers in China. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not the most eager audience to hear about <laughs> business ethics. Um, so the pro the the problem central problem of the paper is basically Shaw kind of giving an like an apologia for himself, like Socrates in Athens, right? H how is it that you can be in? I don't know that Shaw would describe himself as a Marxist, but he in some way be like Marxist adjacent or accept some version of like a Marxian critique of capitalism as a socioeconomic system or as a justified socioeconomic system. How can you have that orientation broadly? And also think that there's anything worthwhile about business ethics as it's a, as it's practiced in the Anglo-American sphere, which seems like it just takes for granted the legitimacy of capitalism as a socioeconomic system. But those two things seem contradictory, right? Mm. Um, so Shaw's kind of trying to defend himself and say, no, there's actually room for adjudicating between those two things. To think that probably capitalism is not a justified socioeconomic system ultimately, but also business ethics has some important role to play even under capitalism. Um, or the study of business ethics has a role to play there. So that's the, the central sort of uh, problem of the paper. And he addresses this concern through two theses that he thinks are, are criticisms of his project of sort of integrating uh, business ethics with a, with a broadly anti-capitalist orientation. Uh, the impossibility thesis and the irrelevance thesis. So maybe we could talk about those two things. Yeah, that sounds good. Real quick. So so when we think of business ethics, is Shaw talking about like a regulatory curbing of the excesses that are sort of natural to the life of the business? Or is business ethics even given more of a, like a primary and active rather than just sort of like secondary and and we might say like um like preventative but that business ethics could potentially be conceived as being like this active almost impelling force whereby um business behavior can actually aim towards some sense of the good we might say even within a capitalist framework where there are excesses and exploitation like, does he explore both of those things? I know, I mean, he talks later about like Robert Reich and stuff like that. I'm just kind of, just to kind of see, like, is, is he kind of like saying, mm, we can actually aim towards that, that second ideal and, and, and that that's okay? Yeah. I mean, that, that's sort of the last section of the paper where he talks about Marx and Reich and, and Friedman and others, um, I think does have this sort of meta um, quality, thinking about business ethics from a, um, from a meta perspective. Yeah. But business ethics, as it's practiced, does not involve that whatsoever. <laughs> it's it's an applied it's an applied ethics, um, okay, a course usually that business majors have to take. It's sometimes taught by philosophers, sometimes by people in the business department. 
um, and is almost entirely not going to involve any sort of like theoretical justifications or ethical principles or anything like that. From from my kind of narrow vantage point, not having delved too much into this sphere, it's almost always just here's a problem. Here's like a case study of an ethical problem that's happened in business, like a particular case study. Um, what are some some basic principles we can use to find a consistent way to approach this case? <laughs> like here's like here's what you know um, Enron did. How do we not do that? In a, in, 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 like a, in a certain way. And how do we justify not doing that? And never really getting into any, um, like really what we might think of as like philosophical discourse. It's really just trying to find a consistent set of principles to use to solve a particular case. That's pretty much always how So it it's not so much about like workplace culture and, and stuff like that, or does that come into it as well? Like wages and i don't know making sure you got cool fucking perks for them like parking spots and there's a tennis court and you get a gym membership and there's like free snacks and is that stuff part of it as well like creating a, a sort of environment that 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 would like make a happy worker is that part of business ethics too yeah I mean, that's probably about as abstract as it gets right <laughs> okay um since it's usually focused on cases okay. like particular cases but yeah i mean that usually it'll be a particular case and then you'll you'll sort of uh, end up talking about okay, what what does a, a good workplace culture look like? What what do managers? What kind of duties do they have? Right, it's like stakeholder versus shareholder kind of theories. Part of this whole discussion, right? Okay. Are do, do managers have obligations, moral obligations to professional obligations, principally to people other than shareholders? And how do we make sense of that? Yeah, yeah. and then and then I'm assuming would there also be something about like governance structures too, or like not even governance structures, but sort of like just hierarchies and 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 like when things are bad that happen. Um, so like there's one sense in which okay, so like if there's an accounting if, if there's accounting fraud, there have to be ways that like better or worse ways that a business would deal with it. Similarly, if there's like workplace harassment, there are better and worse ways to deal with it. Is this something that business ethics would even approach or is that all in like, 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 like another field or would business ethics concern itself? With those oh, things? no. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Okay. Those would be kind of cases. Okay. Like, yeah. You know, okay. Cool. Uh, cases of sexual harassment. And then you talk about what's, what's the appropriate way for, you know, a manager to to deal with that and to set up, you know, uh, programs and systems that sort of stop that from happening in the first place. Yeah. That's all stuff that, they, okay, cool. that you talk yeah, yeah, about. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So let the, the impossibility thesis and the irrelevance thesis. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So these are two sort of criticisms that Shaw has, uh, heard leveled against, um, his, his project of doing business ethics, um, with a broadly anti-capitalist orientation. Uh, so the impossibility thesis is basically the idea that business ethics isn't possible to do because capitalism is, as we were talking about earlier, this kind of totalizing socioeconomic system, which just makes all the subjects within it unethical, like of necessity, right? So this is the kind of like, you know, no ethical consumption under capitalism, except there's no ethical business dealings or whatever, businessing <laughs> under capitalism. Uh, capitalism is inherently unjust. So therefore, anybody who does capitalistic-y things in it is going to be unethical for that reason, right? Um, which is anything, which is, yeah. which is fucking anything that has to do with uh, markets. So it's purchasing labor is necessarily unethical. Purchasing 
um, capital goods, you know, purchasing inputs um, for for your for your manufacturing um, workflow, um, anything that has to do with logistics, uh, those operations, bookkeeping, all of those things. Those all of those things are then therefore just essentially unethical per se from this perspective, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the basic thesis. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, um, Shaw's response to that, I think he's he's mostly kind of right on this charge, at least, is that there's there's kind of a confusion here in that, you know, we can recognize, and I would certainly agree with this, that that capitalism as a socioeconomic system is unjust. Mm. <laughs> like, as, you know, Rawls says that capitalism is unjust as a socioeconomic system. So, like, you don't have to be able to, like a far leftist to think that, mm-hmm. right? Um but just because a, a social system is unjust and is like inherently unjust, it's not capable of being just. In fact, Rawls even said it's not even trying to be just. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's not even it's not even like a, a, a justice, a theory of justice at all. Um, even if you think that, that doesn't mean that there, you can't do right or wrong things within a system that's unjust. That doesn't seem to track at all. Right. If that was the case, then there just wouldn't be ethics at all, period. Since I think probably almost every social system that's ex- that has existed has been to some degree unjust, right? And probably largely unjust. Like, how just does a social system have to be for you to be able to do ethics in it? <laughs> um, mm. That doesn't seem like uh, like there's probably a, a good point there about maybe a, a certain level of injustice would mean that it's almost impossible to do ethics. Yeah, maybe like the aliens come and they blow up the planet, and there's like you know five people left on different continents. Okay. Maybe we don't have a social system anymore, so we can't talk about about ethics in a meaningful way. Maybe like that's the case, but we're probably not at that level, uh, even under you know late, late stage capitalism. So, if that's the case, we can we have norms that exist um, in business practice, like they exist. I think Shaw is right about that. Like the law isn't the only thing that enforces. Um, enforces the rules that are necessary for capitalism to function. Like there are norms that exist beneath that. I mean, I think leftists universally agree with that. That's what they study most of the time, right? Mm. Um, so if that's the case, then we should be able to talk about those norms. And um, and maybe they're almost all bad, but uh, that's part of the analysis here, right? So, yeah, I don't know. What did you think about that? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm I was kind of just thinking about something too, like, like, I wonder how quickly we can make the connection between, um, like capitalist exploitation and capitalism being unjust, right? Like, it's obviously, it's real commonplace for us to be like, okay, so exploitation is essentially a sort of, um, a a moral critique, Right. I think that's very commonplace for people to think now. But is there a way to just think in terms of like, okay, capitalism operates technically in a particular way, right? To just um to just kind of like pause there for a second and say that so this is how it has to function. It has to function through the extraction of surplus value. And where it squeezes out that surplus value is invariable capital. So labor. And um, it does that through various tendencies, right? And then 
and then you stop there and you look at that, like, I think if you just presume that within that process, everything is necessarily unjust, then I think you've, you've made it impossible. You have made it impossible to think of ethics. But if, if you don't see in that process, like just simply like it, like some sort of immoral activity, like that, that it's not just simply like that, that capital isn't like this active agent that just simply when somebody is hired for a job, therefore it's just like taking a qualitative life and converting it into a quantitative input. Like if you just think from that terms, you're, 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 you're trapped. But if you can somehow see in it that like there's something else happening there, you know, like that, like that maybe that work has some sort of value possibility even within a dynamic that is overcoded by a capitalist tendency that there's still something there that's retained without then essentializing work as being like a good thing but just pausing for a second and saying but there's a possibility that there are value propositions pertaining to the desire for working or contributing to society that aren't always already overcoded, then I think that means the impossibility thesis kind of um, runs into to like some dissonance. And I think that's I think that's where I would like to linger for a second, you know, before like rushing to that everything is just always already enclosed. Yeah. Can you say a little more? I'm not sure I'm, I'm quite following. Yeah. So like so like right now, like is it necessarily the case that that everything that takes place within a capitalist dynamic is immoral, right? Like, or is it just that it, there's there's a sense in which we can just look at it as being like a technical activity, right? And by technical, I don't mean like like computers or something like that, but that that's like a like a systemic thing, right? That it takes place. That there's a tendency towards you know um, like the converting of all possible resources that can be put to work for capital, you know, whether it's nature or whether it's, you know, labor or um, whatever it is, right? Anything can be converted as like an input for capital's self-reproduction, right? So that there's like a tendency in that, but that's like a, a technical tendency. That's not necessarily like a, a moral statement, right? Which means then that there's possibilities for like moral capacities within capitalism, um, that aren't always already overcoded by the tendency towards exploitation. So you can look at like like a, a, a job or like a corporation hiring a worker and that isn't just simply automatically like across the board exploitation, right? But that there's something within like um, the desire to contribute to community or um, the desire to take care of family or something like that that is excessive of the like enclosing tendency of converting um, converting human capacity to labor power. You know what I mean? So there's something that is that is not coded, if you will, by the tendential law of capital. And I think I think if you think from that perspective, then 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 what you're allowing for is you're allowing for something to already exist in the first instance that isn't already like coded by capital. Yeah, so I mean one of the like theoretical problems here that I, that I think I'm I'm picking out of this what you're saying is 
like the, the technical interpretation you have, like the of what's going on. So what is exploitation from just a technical point of view um, doesn't in any way determine what the moral judgment of that technical interpretation is. Yeah. But you could think that there's massive exploitation happening at every moment within a capitalist system and think that there's nothing morally wrong happening there or everything morally wrong or somewhere in between. Yes. Right? So yes. there's no, yeah, it's not, it's, there's not a determinant relationship between those two things. And you need some extra um, sort of moral and value-based explanatory framework to get anything normative out of that. Yes. And I think, I think, I, I don't think that when you see a lot of Marxist discourse today, the presumption is, is that the moral framework is like inherent in the technical, right? Yeah. But that goes back to Marx himself. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Right, right, right. So, so what I'm wondering is then if you, if you think from that framework, then what happens is, is you've already kind of, we, we talked about this before, you've kind of like already front loaded your argument so that then any activity of capitalism, and this is like the impossibility thesis, is therefore going to be immoral. But like that seems to ignore – that seems to ignore the insistence, like not like existence, but like that it's insisting within the insistence of other, of other human realities that are, are, are like present within – that um, that technical tendency of capital self-reproduction, right? Which would be something like, I care about my family and I'm going to work. The problem is, is from the kind of like other perspective, like the impossibility perspective, no, even your desire to need to take care of work is always already precluded from having any sort of value outside of the capitalist logic because um, the very means by which you desire to take care of your family in the first place is already kind of a part of like a capitalist ethos. Or to go even further, the fucking family is uh, kind of like a, a, a mini sort of Oedipalized system that um, reinforces, you know, this is like the Deleuze Guattari idea that like reinforces the capitalist structure. And um, so like the nuclear family itself is like a sort of like mini command economy for the reproduction of labor. Right. And like that's not their argument, but that's then what another argument would be. But the, so there's something like that. Right. Yeah. And then once you start. Th but that, that's the totalization you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so then it becomes inherently problematic. But I'm just not sure that that's the case. Right. And I think a lot of this comes from like this idea that like that like abstraction is bad that any sort of abstraction is bad right that like any sort of reduction or, or putative reduction of quality to quantity or something that is supposedly some sort of like pre-existent quality once that's converted into an abstraction that somehow that's like a killing of it and i and and i and i think that there are some historical reasons why people think that way but yeah that's i think that's one of like the tendencies that really prevent people from from being able to think um otherwise that would prevent them from thinking outside of this impossibility thesis yeah yeah i definitely think that and i will say you know um i think one thing shah doesn't do well here is there's something importantly right about the impossibility thesis and the sort of importantly right thing is that there is a sense in which the socioeconomic system that you uh, find yourself in creates conditions for all of your choices and creates the conditions for all of your desires sure. and needs, right? So all the sort of all the sort of content that makes up any um, ethical situation that you're in, that content is all in a sense provided by 
the socioeconomic system and other things as well, like, you know, nature or whatever, um, that you find yourself in. And that's, we, we do need to notice that and recognize that fact. And that colors uh, and characterizes and contextualizes all um, of our ethical issues and problems that, that we address. And we need to recognize that. And that's the kind of thing that um, uh, a business ethics, which is entirely focused on particular cases, doesn't do very well, right? Because it's just not what it's concerning itself with, right? So that seems to me an importantly right frame to have to counter the weaknesses of a thing like business mm. ethics. Now, that doesn't mean that it's going to change business ethics because business ethics is, doesn't really care about those things for a reason, <laughs> uh, for like, you know, a self-interested reason. So that's not going to change. But that's an important critique, I think, of, of business ethics um, and of the way that... So like Shaw basically says like, the impossibility thesis denies that there are ethical norms that exist in capitalism around business practice, but there are ethical norms. So that's wrong. Mm. And that's like kind of missing the point mm. a little bit. Like that's not necessarily what the impossibility thesis is going for, even though I think it is, it is over, um, over grasping and it's critique. Uh, there's an important sense in which we should notice that. Yeah, well, of course there are norms which govern behavior, professional behavior for people who work in, in business, but like there's a sense in which, in, an, in, a, in, a, in a widely unjust socioeconomic system, all of those norms are going to be colored in a bad way. Yeah. They're going to be, in, a, in an important sense, at least partly unjust at the conditions of those things, right? doesn't mean you can't act morally in any way or can't concern yourself with how you ought to act. Of course you can. Um, there's an important sense in which all those things are going to be tainted, right? When you live under conditions of injustice. And that's like a really important point, I think, to, to make. Yeah. And it kind of reminds me of, it, remember, it was a big thing for a while where all these corporations were creating like chief happiness officers and they were like creating yoga hour and meditation rooms and stuff like that for people. And the idea was, is, oh, okay, you know, if you can like alleviate their stress, then they will be happier workers or something like that. And then of course there are a lot of critiques against this that are like, you know, especially against something like mindfulness, for example, which has been called like Mick mindfulness by some people. And the idea is that it's like, well, you're basically just turning something um, into an input for a system to extract more value out of their workers by making them kind of complacent, right? And um, there is something that is true in that, right? That, that like cannot be denied that there are these like mechanisms within these corporations that even if they're viewed as being like ethical or being good for um, like community welfare or something like that, um, like within the within the corporation, community like workplace vibes. Um, even if you do those things, they're still tied into this larger system. You know, yeah, you have a free beer hour, but that beer was produced in a factory under exploitative labor conditions. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like and and it had to use logistics systems to ship it from a point A to point B to point C to point D. And there's um, you know uh, global supply chains that are like uh, you know implicit in all of this, right? That's that hidden abode of production. So it's like it's good to attune ourselves to that hidden abode that we are often ignorant of when we're just consuming our beer at the cool work party that our corporate uh, corporation has thrown for us. But um, but at the same time, it's it's almost like that can't be all that there is either, right? There's, or at least I'm just not sure at this point that that's that's all there is.
Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is a good segue to the irrelevancy just because I think the impossibility thesis proponents are right to be skeptical of all the existing um, professional norms in business. Like we should be oriented as skeptical as skeptics about those norms, right? Because they exist within a vastly unjust system, right? So they're just not likely to be oriented towards anything like making the system more more just or better. It's just not likely to happen. If it does, it's because some people tried really hard to do that, right? Um, not because the system just produced that result, because sometimes it does good things or whatever. Um, yeah, so we, we're right. It's, it's correct to be skeptical about those things. And I think Shaw's pretty insufficiently skeptical, it seems to me, about some of this stuff, especially at the end when he's talking about like public expectations and and uh, fiduciary responsibility and profit maximization, all this kind of stuff, uh, it kind of assumes that we can like we can just develop norms that are better about those things. Um, and I know it's not part of the paper to actually talk about how to do that in a social way, but it just I, it seems right to me to be very skeptical about any existing norms around that stuff. Like it's it's a good orientation to have, given that those things almost always lead towards unjust outcomes, mm. unless people try really hard to make them not do that. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So what's the irrelevance thesis? Yeah. So the irrelevance thesis is, again, a critique of uh, the idea that you can do business ethics. Uh, and it says that when we focus on uh, the immoral conduct of individuals or even of corporations or firms, we obscure the fact that capitalism as a socioeconomic system as a whole needs to be altered or replaced. Um, so we shouldn't be focusing no. on what business ethics does the problems of individual forums or, you know, cases that uh, that develop and the norms that, that should follow from a uh, careful study of those cases. Instead, no, we have the, the first sort of uh, desideratum is to replace capitalism as a whole. Only then can you have anything like, um, I don't know, just norms in, in professional uh, contexts or whatever. Hmm. If I, I don't even know if this is, it just kind of popped into my head um, and it's, you know, something we've talked about a lot on the podcast, but so like Eric Olin Wright was a big advocate of, um, of, uh, like a, a, a big form of like co-ops or a big fan of like a big advocate of co-ops and like universal basic income and stuff like that with his like real existing, what is it? Real utopias project. Um, real existing, yeah, real existing yeah. utopias. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so he was a big advocate of that as being a way to, um, you know, erode capitalism was, you know, he's got like, what is it? Smash, escape, tame, and then erode, right? Um, smash is like the mm -hmm. revolutionary. Um, tame is like the, the reformist, you know, kind of just, uh, you know, curb some of the excesses through um, kind of like liberal, liberal welfare um, regulation, that kind of thing. And then, um, and then escape is like the anarchist go out into the woods kind of shit. And then, um, and then his idea was erode, right? And but what I'm thinking is that like to advocate for a co-op, this seems to like to 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 particularly be relevant to certain certain business ethics interests because what you're essentially doing is you are kind of like changing the structure away from a sort of shareholder model to one that is concerned with stakeholders, right? Um, not in the sense of like fucking uh, stakeholder capitalism, um, 
that that people talk about so much, but that what you do is that you are eminently concerned with um, the kind of like well-being or at least a, a feigning towards equality um, within like the corporate structure of the business. And so what you then do get is you get a sort of it, it kind of seems to work within a context of like advocating. I mean, this is maybe pitched at like a higher level abstraction than what Shaw is advocating for. But it is it is sort of like advocating for a sense in which you can create a type of like um, ethical market based firm, right, within capitalism. So those types of proposals do seem to be kind of like taking the possibility of doing business ethics and and making it into like a real like relevant issue you know and obviously they get critiqued for that like someone they people critique you know market socialism all the time you know um but uh but there are there are ideas that are out there that are sort of at least trying to implement these things i don't know if that's going too far afield here but i, I kind of just felt like um it just kind of like popping into my mind when you were talking about the the irrelevance thesis yeah yeah i'm kind of torn on this issue a little bit like um, even like the, the, the patron sponsored topic was whether you can be an ethical CEO, right? Not whether you can be, not whether there can be an ethical business yeah. or firm or corporation. Right. And I, I always struggle with like, is that just, is that just not, is that just a category mistake? Mm. Um, in the sense that it's almost like when people try to talk about whether the business itself is, is ethical or whatever its practices are ethical. Um, maybe we're just obscuring an important point because we just there's like a um like an ethics washing thing happening where someone's trying to make themselves or make their business look ethical so that you know it's got a better reputation or whatever and um hmm. we can talk about that when we get to the, that point about public expectations but um yeah it just it just seems like that that, that discussion for me never really tracks super well um, and that we can talk about like societies as being just like the, the kinds of things that are just are societies and the kinds of things that are, that are, uh, moral or ethical or people, um, groups. And a lot of people do think it's really important to talk about groups and maybe corporations as, as having that sort of, uh, characteristic or quality. And I just don't know. I'm, I'm torn. I can see reasons for and against that idea. Mm. Maybe it's it's more like what does uh, George Costanza say about his belief in God? He doesn't believe in God, but he does only for the bad things. <laughs> um, maybe maybe corporations are only responsible when they're bad, and they're not responsible when they're good. That seems that seems like I, I can't hold that thesis consistently. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, because because then I'm I'm thinking here. So like. So like uh, from 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 like the most vulgar of of possible readings, like a radical determinist reading of history, it's like there isn't a need for ethical discussion because it's like, oh, well, this just will happen, right? Like history is pregnant with socialism and therefore it will transition. Capitalism will break down, right? Um, of course, the problem is, is like even people who advocate for that are like really hoping for the breakdown of capitalism, which then is like, well, wait a second, <laughs> like once you do that, you're already like imposing your value desires onto it. Right. So, um, like even that you can try to say all you want that this is like an inevitable, like deterministic historical thing, but clearly there's some sort of like ethical desire for a better society in that. Otherwise you would just sit back and be like, okay, cool. I'm not going to talk about it anymore. Just don't fucking talk about it then. 
Yeah, who's who's the tragedian <laughs> who thinks that history is pregnant with socialism but wishes it was? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or or just like doesn't it's just totally apathetic entirely. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's pregnant with socialism. Cool. <laughs> so I'm just gonna drink my tea and I'm just gonna shut the fuck up now because it's just gonna happen. No, no. They're always like, it's pregnant, it's pregnant with socialism. It's no, I'm telling you, it's real, it's the contractions are coming, you know, and they get more and more fucking frantic. It's like, okay, dude. We get it. You really secretly want to have an ethical theory here, but you're just afraid that that's going to like betray your supposed theoretical commitments. I get it. Okay, whatever, bro. Um, that's not cool and materialist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, but um, but so like, okay, that aside, so let's say that people are like, well, it should be overcome, right? So the majority of people are like, yeah, it should be replaced, let's say, or it should be transformed or whatever language you want to use. Um, but let's say it should be replaced. It should be overcome, should be superseded by a, a more equitable system, a more ethical system or a non-exploitative system to kind of like take away the really strong value language. Right. Um, so even if that's the case, so the whole exploit sounds pretty value laden to me, but yeah, that's just me. <laughs> what did you say? Exploit is pretty value laden to me, but maybe that's exploitation is pretty value laden to me, but that might just be me. <laughs> no, no, it is. I just mean that there is like a technical reading of exploitation that is supposed to just mean like the, 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 the material extraction of surplus value, right? Rather than it being like, I don't know, rather than it being the, the value version of like, it's bad because that value should was was produced here but stolen kind of idea right so like no i i understand i just i just don't think that i think that the smuggling i agree i agree uh a normative I, theory. I, there, yeah. there, it, like i it is a fucking normative theory of course it is yeah yeah it is um but yeah so so even if we think like okay so someone's like we should we should replace it we should replace it and so therefore business ethics is irrelevant but like, but this is what I mean, like even someone like Eric Olin Wright, like advocating for uh, co-ops, that is kind of like a business ethics, right? Like he's like to advocate for some sort of like erosion of capital. It's still arguing for the replacement of it, but through business ethics, but a business ethics that like operates according to a logic that is non-exploitative. Do you, do you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, what I think the strength is of that kind of view, and it doesn't mean that that particular policy is the right one necessarily, yeah. but we're talking about like integration of these two levels of analysis, right? The social and the individual, uh, and maybe even like the cosmic, if we're getting real philosophical about it, um, is that we, the, the weaknesses of the of the two views we originally talked about that um, didn't have this integration was because they didn't, they didn't sort of um, integrate the social and the individual, and that Eric Olin Wright, one reason I like Eric Olin Wright is that he's trying to, to do this integration, right? And think about uh, even the very idea of like non-reformist reforms, right? Is trying to say, what's a, a policy we can institute that has these larger scale effects that recognize the injustice of the conditions of the policy itself, mm. right? So we're both saying that this policy is good because it's better than whatever it's replacing. And that it has likely to have these effects that um, resituate and recontextualize the situation so such a policy wouldn't be necessary at all, right? And that, that doesn't mean that the particular policy of co-op does that or, or that any particular non-reformist reform does that. Um, but that that 
that, that is an instance of the integration of those two different spheres of analysis, which is necessary, right? Mm, yeah. And it might be that any particular non-reformist reform out there doesn't do that well enough. That's totally possible. I'm open to that for someone who's a little bit more, you know, skeptical of those kinds of things. Um, but at least it's, it's attempting to do both of those things. Mm. Yeah. 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 So, so let's keep going through Shaw's argument here. Cause next he goes to like Milton Friedman and Robert Reich and what's his point in, in bringing up them. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if you wanted to get into this cause it's kind of a, a theoretical point, but it, it has some, um, some relevance to what we're talking about here. He talks about how like Marx and Friedman actually have this point of agreement about how corporations can only act in their own self-interest because they're in a sense determined socially. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, someone like Robert Reich will come in and say that that's that's kind of true. And that's why a law needs to come in as a, a regulatory mechanism to, to move corporations away from that natural orientation, in which they're determined um, uh, to have. And that uh, proponents of corporate social responsibility uh, are sort of um, in a different sphere, arguing that uh, it's possible for individuals and for firms to internalize goals and norms that are other than profit maximization. Um, they can sort of act for other regarding reasons to use like the way that analytic moral philosophers talk about it. And I don't know, like we can talk about this if you want, but my, my kind of feeling about this idea is just that like, I certainly believe that individuals can act for other regarding reasons um, as like a psychological point, right? That is fully consistent with the idea that capitalism tries to make us not do that, <laughs> hmm. right? And like influences us not to do that and sets us up into situations where it's not to our benefit to do that, encourages us not to act for other regarding reasons and even develops us psychologically to to like restrict and repress that part of our psychology and that a better system wouldn't do those things. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and also just the idea that like, just because individuals can do that doesn't necessarily mean that groups of individuals mm -hmm. uh, necessarily yeah. can do that to the same degree or anything like that, or anything that follows from individual psychology to, to group psychology, let alone the way corporations work. Like it's, you could fully consistently in my mind say that individuals are, are capable, uh, given appropriate moral development to act for non-self-interest reasons. Right. But then basically no corporations do that <laughs> in practice. Mm. That seems totally consistent to me. And I don't know why that it has to be one or the <laughs> other. I don't know. What do you think? No, I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, no, I agree. I don't really have anything to add. I don't think to that. So, so since we're running a little long on time here, let's, let's talk yeah. about these, the, these actual aspects of corporate social responsibility, because this is like the mean, but this is like the actual, like cash value of, um, this question of whether it's possible to be an ethical CEO. Right. So Shaw talks about three things, fiduciary responsibility, basically, um, can managers uh, or do managers have obligations to people other than shareholders, right? In like contemporary capitalism. Um, profit maximization number two, uh, basically Shaw's argument there is that it's not plausible um, that we can single out a single outcome as the, as the profit maximizing outcome and then aim for that. So since that's not really plausible, 
Uh, instead, managers should think about a set of all things that are likely to be profitable and choose the most responsible thing among them. Among them. And his example there is like Costco as opposed to Walmart. Um, Costco treats their employees well and doesn't have a lot of turnover and has less exploitation than Walmart. And it's just as profitable as Walmart. So there's no, there's no way we can say that Walmart is like the best at doing this because they're the most exploitative or whatever and, and most profit maximizing. But then that also um, and approves, then third, public that also approves that, uh, presumes that profitability is the 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 primary um, driver, you know. Whereas there's a lot of literature now that's actually arguing that profitability is not the most important thing, you know. It, what's, it, it definitely, is yeah, <laughs> especially now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So especially with the rise of like you know platforms like we were talking about earlier, which may change the way that yeah. that corporate models are structured in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So definitely. So that, I don't know if that changes the argument, but it might because then a company like Walmart is actually disincentivized from changing precisely because it's not as profitable from Costco because it doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't really matter because it can continue to manipulate prices because of its quasi monopoly over the price mechanism and because of which impacts how come it can continue to um, get cheap labor as well but then also because of its 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 larger kind of um reach as a platform that has this online presence and that really what matters is its share price or, or its corporate rating you might call it and then its ability to kind of like endlessly receive access to credit or um, investment or, uh, you know, capital of whenever it might need it. So like, you know, it, it kind of changes, it kind of changes things when you think about it from that perspective. Yeah, I think you're totally right that Shaw's arguing with Friedman here, essentially. Yeah. Um, and we're not in a Friedman style <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> I'm not yeah. sure we ever really have been, but we're certainly not now. And the idea of, of looking of taking the manager Right as the sort of window into how corporations work, it's just that's just not like that's fine if because you're talking to students who are going to be managers. I guess that's not a good window into how how capitalism works, which is kind of what he's assuming here is that um, the decisions about profit maximization with respect to obligations to shareholders versus stakeholders is like how we ought to view how firms act. It's like it's not how firms act yeah. <laughs> uh, at all. Um, so yeah, that's, that's insufficiently like theoretical, uh, here. Mm. Mm -mm. Okay. So what's it? And then, and yeah. then finally the last one is the, the public expectations one, which we've already kind of, um, proleptically, I think talked a bit about, and that's the idea that, uh, this, is, I think the worst part of the paper is Shaw saying basically, um, I mean, he's correct to say that the people, the consumers are more concerned with corporations acting responsibly than in previous times. And so he says, if that's the case, then uh, it's to the benefit of corporations to act responsibly, or at least to appear to be acting responsibly. And since the best way to appear to be acting responsibly is to act responsibly, you can just lean in to acting <laughs> responsibly, and that will benefit your company. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, but he, he also, he knows that that sounds naive. And so he throws us an addendum of that, and this is true, even if most of the time, the appearing to act responsibly is fake. And it's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> if if most of the time, the appearing to act responsibly is fake, which is true, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and not only fake, actually possibly detrimental to acting responsibly, like and it leads to acting more irresponsibly, potentially, um, then 
then the whole idea of leaning into public expectations doesn't work. Mm. Right? Like if this thing about climate change, if if ExxonMobil is and Shell are producing all these commercials talking about how they're investing in clean technology and they're going to be a major part of transitioning away from fossil fuels and into renewable energy sources. And they're doing all that while in full knowledge doing everything possible politically and otherwise to ensure that fossil fuels are not moved away from and that the worst aspects of climate change are followed through on, right, just to retain um, corporate power and dominance in the market, then then they're leaning into public explanations is just tricking people into not realizing what they're actually doing is de- and how detrimental it is, right? It's actually having the reverse effect. It's making people reassured when they shouldn't be about certain things. Um, so... Yeah, that whole that whole thing I think is just the capstone on the big problem with this paper in my mind, and that it's insufficiently skeptical of um, the the permeant the permeating sort of nature of of social injustice under like late capitalism. Um, even if I, I do think Shaw has a lot of important things to say about trying to integrate uh, sort of individual and and like small group level ethical analysis with thinking about larger social structures and um, and how those that interplay between those things works. But that's, I think, fully consist, uh, consistent with being much more skeptical mm. about um, about all these individual uh, sort of situations we're talking about. Yeah. And I want to add another layer to this from the research of the scholar that I mentioned before, Sarah Kane. Um, who talks about how like one of the differences we have with the these like platform economy firms is that these businesses are changing the social contract, she argues, because they're basically changing and breaking the law. So the laws aren't non-market entities that are being placed on top of market entities uh, in the name of a public good, which Shaw seems to presume, but rather... Laws, especially especially once you understand regulatory capture, but if you understand like the power of lobbying and even more so with sort of like integration of platform economy firms, laws are being changed by market activities, right? So laws are kind of in this sense almost epiphenomenal to and in service of these, these market actors – that are like directly through, um, like I said, through lobbying and, um, and and things like that are actually kind of like building their own capital power that changes the legal framework. So there's a little like I don't know. I, I think that kind of like changes things a, a little bit because now you have a sort of like um, you have a sort of like problematization, if you will, like a, a, a complication of 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 what laws themselves actually are. So therefore, like like internal governance strategies and things like that can be self-reinforcing because um, because the firms are the ones that are able to produce the internal governance strategies that then will be codified into legal structures that then will become sort of exported to other firms and then exported around the country. And, and that's a very different way of understanding the relationship here. Yeah, definitely. And, and this kind of gets me to think maybe we can have like a, a denouement here. Um, the, the central problem being if we're, if we are this skeptical about like corporate capture and the ability of uh, massive corporations to be acting more on, on 
motives of, of power than purely about profit maximization and are able to influence even uh, and control even the regulatory apparatus, which is supposed to govern the norms, which are make the business practice ethical or whatever. If we're as skeptical as I think we're saying we should, we should be about these things, how can you possibly be um, a sort of appropriate moral subject within a system like that? And obviously it's different depending upon where you are in that system, yeah. right? Um, like, I deal with this in thinking about working in universities where I think universities are really unjust um, organizations uh, and they do lots of harm. Now, I try to convince myself that they do more good or have opportunity <laughs> to do more good than they do harm and like maybe a crass utilitarian analysis, right? Um, so maybe it's not that bad or maybe it's okay that I work in these systems and I'm not just like some independent researcher. <laughs> um, uh, just have a, have a sub stack, no problems. With That's that, right. right? Uh, but then what do you tell somebody who like finds themselves working at Cigna or Blue Cross Blue Shield or Exxon or, you know, whatever? Um, is it possible to be in the in those organizations and do anything ethically? Like I, you can treat your your like fellows ethically, certainly. But as a professional in your professional duties, um, I mean, I want to say yes, because it seems crass to say otherwise. And certainly if I think being in a university, you can um, act professionally in a, uh, in a morally upstanding manner, then uh, I want to say that about other people too. But it's tough. Like I find myself kind of wanting to tell people who work at um, Exxon or Blue Cross Blue Shield, like you got to quit. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> like don't, don't do mm. that. Um, especially, I mean, especially if you work in, like things that actually contribute towards large scale injustice, you know, um, diamond, out there you own denying a diamond people mine, health coverage, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Owning one thing, but I'm talking more about like, you know, the grunts, right. Um, or like middle managers is probably the people who are being You're a middle manager for the subjects business ethics, corporation. Yeah. 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 Like, I mean, is it crass to just tell somebody, bro, you gotta, you gotta quit. Like you gotta change your job. Yeah. I mean, I'm torn between thinking that that's high-minded and it's an ivory tower for someone in a university to say, but also kind of being like, yeah, but still, if you're working for Blue Cross Blue Shield and you go around denying people health coverage for bullshit, you shouldn't be doing that. Like, I know you got a family to feed and I, I sympathize with that, but probably also don't do that. Okay. And then here's this. And then this is just, just cause I said, remember I, I said earlier, I wanted to like linger over like not rushing to the, to the, the, the kind of like moral castigation so quickly. So here's the question then. Okay. So you work at one of these corporations, you're a middle manager and you've got a team, but, but you oversee a team. And if you can create better, create better, um, like workflow efficiencies for your team, then that means that these people who are, you know, like they're, they're, they're either working class or, um, you know, kind of like professional, like, like kind of like lower socioeconomic tier professionals. Um, but what you're doing is you're creating opportunities for them to receive a wage so that they can take care of their families as well. Now, is there something that is actually inherently positively ethical in that, right? Like one of the arguments that you get from a lot of certain types of Marxists about China is that China, despite all of the kind of like humanitarian problems that can be leveled against them, that they have uh, raised more people out of poverty than any country in history, 
right? Like this is one of the really big arguments that people make about how they basically created a middle class through like forced um, infrastructural investment kind of thing, right? Is that a good thing? Is that, is that like, like not just like in the sense that's like, oh, cool. So people were brought out of poverty. But I mean, like, is there something even like morally good in the use of market mechanisms through extracting surplus value that also raises people to the level of the middle class? Like from the evolutionary kind of like or from, from like the determinist Marxist perspective, it's quote unquote good because it's like you know, creating a class that will then eventually creating more people, like bringing them out of like the lumpen and turning, turning them into a proletariat so that you can create class consciousness or something like that. Right. Beyond that kind of argument, that's like, oh, like in, in some sort of deterministic sense, this is like, you know, moving towards like the possibility of, of socialism. But just in the sense that like, is there something good about that? Giving people jobs or, you know, uh, giving people a sense in which that they have some kind of community, even if it's like a bastardized sense, we might say. But is there also something inherently good in that? Yeah, I think you know what I think about this, because uh, <laughs> but I'm curious what you think. Uh, I mean, just to put it simply, like that analysis can go two ways. One can be the crass utilitarian, like it was worth it, <laughs> <laughs> right. right, because it created this. And that's obviously, I think, um like ghastly and wrong. Uh, the way you put it, though, I think importantly was weaker than that, was like, is there something good about that? And that seems like, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's good that fewer people are in poverty and don't have to like scrape by to get the means for subsistence. Like that's that's a good thing. That's different than saying that it was right the way that it happened. So you mm. can admit something is good while not thinking that it's right that it happened, right? I mean... The, the kind of um, conceptual point here is talked about sometimes in, in ethics is like the fact that um, you can har harming someone and, and, and wronging someone are not the same thing, right? So like if someone is uh, walking down the street and you're not paying attention when you're driving and so you like almost hit them and so oh, like you like run over their foot or something. Um, but by doing that, you stop another car from hitting them, mm. Right then it's like, well, technically, you kind of <laughs> saved their life, right? Right. But it's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't mean that what that you did that was, you, was right. So then what you're you saying is you should life. just go around and try to run over people's feet on the off chance that you might save them from getting hit by another. I get it. I get it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And obviously the, the, the sort of mechanics of, the, of that situation are different than the thing we're talking about with China. But the basic conceptual point just being uh, there's a difference between an outcome being good or to some degree good, um, and the uh, the process that led to that outcome being a just one or a yeah. right one. Those are different questions. And so we can have different answers to those. But I don't know. What, what do you think about the, the larger scale historical point? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think what I'm what I'm really trying to to work through is that like I think that that if you just say that every single activity that takes place under the law of capital or according to the logic of capital. If you just automatically say that all of those activities are therefore like just stained, right? And um, then I think I, I think I'm 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 just kind of I've held that position for a very long time, right? So I think I'm just trying to think about 
why I've held that position. And I think a lot of it has been a sort of like uptaking of, of content and ideas and things like that. And so I'm just trying to make sure that I like, that I really think through it. And I'm wondering now that like, is there something that even in the exploitative activity, right? Whether at like the micro scale of like the individual hire or at the, 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 the macro scale of like historical development, let's say, like, is there something that is actually like potentially good in it? Like, is there something still quote unquote human in it, right? Like, like for Sartre, the reason that seriality is such a bad thing is because it basically inhumanizes us. And I, and I try to work through that in my book by trying to then think about like, okay, what does it mean that it inhumanizes us? And, and, and what does it even mean to be human, right? Like maybe the idea of the human as being distorted is already too abstract in the first place because the conception of that which has been distorted was an ideal, right? Like some sort of conception of the human that um, that has been kind of fabricated in the first place that then is like degraded. So it's like abstraction on top of abs- abstraction. And so I'm, I'm trying to then think, okay, so if, if that's the case, then like what does that mean then for like – like kind of like unpacking this 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 larger systemic tendency of this thing that we call capitalism but like understanding that there's still stuff there that that isn't always already like foreclosed by um by by like the 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 moral exploitation of the extraction of surplus value you know and um i i i think that I think that there is something there. And and the problem is, is whenever you start thinking about this, then you, people accuse you of like essentializing, right? Like of like thinking that, oh, there's something like inherently human about like working or there's something inherently human about like the activity of exchanging. But the problem is, is that when you understand capital, what you understand is that actually that exchange and even the very idea of expenditure of, of energy is always already abstracted according to blah, blah, blah. I get it. I get I get the argument. Like I've I've read a lot of Moish Pastone and I really uh, am very I'm very sensitive to his argument and and I agree in so many ways and but I'm just wondering if that's it you know and I'm I'm trying to think then about like if if capitalism is a type of of um a new social formation a a, a new historical like an historically specific type of social formation. It doesn't like eradicate previous flows. Those things are still there. Now, are they like coded? Are they are they buried under new layers of of like social abstraction? Yeah, I'm sure. But there's still something there, like insistent in that 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 is you want to call it human, you want to call it historical, I'm not sure, but that's what I'm I'm curious about and and I don't want to yeah. Yeah, and I don't want to give that up too easily right now. So that's just kind of that's just kind of what I'm thinking. I know that kind of is a little bit broad and 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 maybe a little bit unclear, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Well, let me let me end this with maybe a, a little a little okay. rant about what I think ethics okay. is about. But I think jives with your idea about this like what's still human, yeah, um, leftover or whatever. And this this kind of goes back to like my recognition or my emphasis on the recognition that there's 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 tragedy involved in um in act, trying to act ethically in unjust circumstances and that's that's almost all of our circumstances so it's pretty ubiquitous and, you know one way of thinking about ethics is that it's really about figuring out what the right things to do and what the wrong things to do are doing the right things and not doing the wrong things mm. 
and that's very much like a like a legalistic um kind of like falling falling from like a 10 commandments kind of um you know divine command theory or whatever kind of thinking about ethics i think that's a really bad way of thinking about it a lot of people think that's Kant's ways of thinking about it but they just haven't run across, <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about um a better way i think of talking about of thinking about the role of ethics and this kind of is going to be my answer to this ethical thesis ceo thing and maybe it's not very satisfying to some people but i think it's it's better for, as an orientation for thinking um the way to think about ethics is is less about sorting actions into the right ones and the wrong ones i don't think you, you can do that let alone should do that um but instead Think about ethics as a way for you to think about why you do what you do, to tell other people why you do what you do, and to hear other people tell you why they do what they do and why you should do what you should do. Have you been reading Brandom? Um, Have you been reading Brandom? No, man. I I always got a little bit of Brandom. Yeah, there's a little bit of that in there. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. There's a little bit of the giving and asking for reasons thing. That's a human practice, right? And that's really what ethics is about. It's about explaining to yourself and to the people why you do what you do mm. and to ask for others to explain themselves to you and to understand them. Like it's about understanding ultimately yourself and others. That's what ethics is mm. about, right? And so if that's what it's about, then there really isn't an answer to whether or not you can be an ethical CEO, in the sense of like checking off on a card that I've been ethical in my CEOing <laughs> or whatever, that's not not going to happen for you. Like if that's what you want, then like you're not going to get a gold star. Like to, God doesn't come down and give you the gold stars at the end of the day, right? Um, if instead it's about understanding yourself and your reasons, self knowledge and also other knowledge, understanding other people and trying to better communicate with them and better relate to them, um, then it's going to be less of a uh less of a determinate enterprise because you're not going to have um like final answers to things necessarily it's a practice that we engage in with ourselves and with other people and so that means that maybe it's not clear whether you can work for cigna and and do so in a morally upstanding manner um i lean towards no but maybe you can i don't know it's like what are your reasons tell me right Uh, i've told you my reasons tell me Mm. yours and if we engage in that in a good faith way, that practice in a good faith way, and we care about other people and know that they're they're trying, if they are indeed trying um, uh, to act ethically, then that's like the point of it is to have that discussion, not necessarily um, to like figure out the once for all answer about that question of whether you can be an ethical CEO and then proceeding forthwith. Mm. Yeah, I really like. I don't know. What I mean, I really that? like that. Um that de- that that kind of like redefinition of ethics or that definition of ethics i think that's really that's really well, i really it, it's really illuminating i'm not sure it's really helpful because i feel like not i don't mean that in like a like you're not being helpful troy i mean like if somebody comes to you if somebody <laughs> comes to you and says can you be an ethical ceo they they might be a little bit dissatisfied with that answer because i think they're already presuming oh, yeah sure. they're already presuming yeah. a type of theologic Almost right. Like they're expecting, Hey, I want to know, like, is an ethical CEO, are they going to be punished in the afterlife? (laughs) You know, kind (laughs) of, and give give me the justification. Yeah. And I think, I think what you're offering is, is kind of unsatisfying for that type of demand. But here's the thing. I think it's, 
It's actually truly revolutionary, though, in the sense that if you are coming with that kind of question, I demand to know, is there a right and a wrong, you're already kind of engaging in a really sort of conservative theological expectation for demarcating the lines between the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, the in, the out, the rational, irrational, whatever. And you're kind of already living under a sort of like theological orientation, which I, to me, if I believe in anything about ethics, I think it's about like fucking killing that theological orientation. So maybe for me, that's what ethics is about. And the giving and 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 asking for reasons is an activity that is this process that that like prevents us from dogmatism, you know? And so for me, it's like, and, and maybe this is just my own, maybe I'm betraying now my whole point here, because for me, I feel like dogmatism is the thing that 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 like I'm ultimately like trying to resist as much as possible. And and what, how, like how it forms, that's what I'm really interested in. Like what are the conditions that, that create dogmatic thinking, dogmatic activities? Like is it because it comes from a foundational, foundationalism? Maybe. Like maybe that's, that's it. I mean I, I think that, that that is true. Um, but maybe there are other explanations for it. But, but when someone asks for like a clear – answer for something like that with regards to like ethical thinking, I think that they're already kind of presuming a sort of theological logic. And therefore there's like an inherent dogmatism in their demand for an answer. And um, I think what you're offering is something that is non-dogmatic. And I think because of that, there's something really interesting, like potentially revolutionary interesting in terms of how you can think differently. And like if novelty is going to emerge, if, if other forms of um, social existence, you know, whether it's corporate in, in the sense of like a corporation or whether we just mean corporate in the sense of like community. Um, if, if there's going to be other ways of doing that, it can't, it can't proceed by like navigating through different types of dogmatism, like a good dogmatism versus a bad dogmatism, right? Like the, the good dogmatism being the Marxist one that's like, this is good and that's bad, right? The bad dog, bad dogmatism being like, I don't know, fucking Christian supremacism or something like that, right? And I think that if we can just clear the field of dogmatisms, then we can actually start to like engage in the activity of community building in, in a much richer way. And I think that's what your your conception of ethics allows for. So, yeah. Yeah, this is really good. And we probably should end it here if we get into a different tangent, but I do want to flag that what what dogmatism is an interesting name for this, right? Because I think... I think you're right to say that the, the the theological kind of dogmatism that the person is who wants an absolute answer to right and wrong actions, that is a kind of dogmatism, I think. Um, I'm not really a pragmatist, though. Like, I'm not a full, like, Brandomian or Brandomite or whatever they call themselves. <laughs> Brando, Brandominium. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. So, so <laughs> uh, I, I think I own a Brandominium. Um uh, because I'm not a pragmatist, some of the things that that, that orientation is going to call a dogmatism, I don't think are dogmatism. Um, but that specific practice, I think, is an ethical kind of dogmatism. So yeah, it would be interesting at some point to, to think more about like what are the what is the dogmatism uh, moniker or name or whatever category? What does it cover in ethics? Because that seems like a, a prime one, but there's probably other things where. A, a brand of my, might call me a dogmatist and I 
would reject that label or something. But yeah, that's, that's a different issue. But yeah, I think you're right that that's going to be unsatisfying to, to someone who wants that. I think the appropriate thing there is to, to question that want. Like, why, why do you want that? Is it really about <laughs> mm. caring about things that matter? Or is that about having a, a satisfying, um, a satisfying, like, or a, a satisfied conscience or mm. something, right? Which is not, not the thing that, that matters most. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, interesting. So, yeah, can you be a fucking ethical CEO? Well, I've... tune in for part no. Tune in for part two. <laughs> yeah. Can we just title the, the episode? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, um, I mean, hopefully people found that discussion interesting. I sure as shit did. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of stuff to, to kind of continue to think through. That's for sure. Um, but let's go ahead and wrap that up there. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for the suggestion, everybody. It got it kind of forced me to, to think about things in, in different areas. And I got to read this paper that I probably never would have read of in my entire life because I don't tend to uh, sift through the business ethics literature. So interesting. Um, but yeah, but, uh, yeah. And so thanks Troy for bringing that up too, but, um, cool. So let's go ahead and transition to the final segment of the show. This is the time where one of us gets to talk about something that's giving us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So Troy, what's giving you joy at the moment? Yeah. So I'll keep this short since we're running pretty long, but I saw JPEG mafia, uh, the other day. Uh, do you know JPEG no. mafia? Yeah. He's an underground, uh, rapper, um, really celebrated, in the underground uh, has had some commercial appeal. He's like worked with Danny Brown and some other people in that kind mm. of sphere. Um, he's he's amazing. He came to my little town and uh, and sort of rocked the world. He's 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 known for being a quite the energetic uh, live performer, and he was absolutely that. And my my uh, my uh, sticky leaves is not him specifically, even though he is an, like an eternal sticky leaf because he's awesome. Uh, if you're into like, abstract hip hop and experimental hip hop, um, he's very online and very smart and very mm. good. Um, what happened though was the venue he was at is this weird venue in my town that is in a basically like in a shopping center. Um, so it's like an abandoned Vons or Kroger or something, <laughs> and they turned it into a venue. And the median age of people at this show was 19. Oh shit. I felt so fucking old <laughs> at this show. And it's the first time, maybe the first time in my life, I've really, like, I've felt old before in certain contexts, right? Like if you're at a, you know, birthday party for teenagers or whatever, sometimes in class, I'll feel that way. Um, but I, I don't think I've ever been in a social situation where I felt old and I felt like I had no idea what was happening socially in my environment. Mm -hmm. I was like an ethnologist who was having an experience with a lost tribe. <laughs> I did not know what these kids were doing. There was this, and they were impressive. Like these kids were high school students that looked like maybe early college students. Um, and it was an all ages show. So there could have been a lot of high school students and they were doing weird shit and a lot of cool shit. Like at one point in between sets, uh, an old Kendrick Lamar song came on, Backseat Freestyle from uh, Good Kid, Med City. And they do all the words. And I was like, that that album came out like almost 10 years ago, something like that. that that's impressive. I like these kids. They're, they're going to be all right. <laughs> they're, they're better than us. But then they were doing weird shit. And I, I want somebody out there who's gotten through two hours of this episode 
to explain this to me because everyone I've talked to that's my age did not understand what was going on. So there's this thing apparently that the kids do at concerts or wherever where the people in the front of the concert will raise their phone up, turn the screen to the people behind them and have messages displayed on the phone for the people in the crowd to read. And so some of it was kind of obvious. Like someone said, um, uh, like where the perks at perks, like with a C. So I'm assuming that's like Percocet. It's like they're asking for drugs. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but then there was weird shit. Like the craziest thing happened. It was surreal. It was like out of David Lynch film where these random messages would be going up. And some of them are obvious. Some of them, I have no idea what they mean. They're just completely, they're completely coded in a way that is meant for old, olds not to be able to understand. And then this one kid raises up his phone has a picture of Garfield on it. The mm -hmm. cat Garfield. <laughs> and everyone goes nuts. <laughs> like applause from the whole crowd. What? <laughs> what is happening here? What does Garfield mean? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. What is the Garfield? What is, did I you Google? Like, is there like some sort of, some sort of code of like what Garfield means? I tried. I couldn't get anything. I'm assuming it's a drug reference. So one of my friends was saying, this was a clever suggestion. What if, um, what if, what if, uh, oh shit, I'm forgetting what the, what the answer was now. It has something to do with like Garfield the cat and cat is like a lingo. Like some ketamine? Sort of, uh, drug. Yeah. Oh, I didn't, I didn't think ketamine. That, 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 that might okay, be Garfield's it. a cat and it sounds it like was something cat. else, but I, I don't know. Yeah. So something like that. Um, I don't know. I'm curious if anyone out there knows this phenomenon of like holding up your phone to the audience with messages on it, sometimes written, sometimes pictorial. That's the thing I hadn't seen. And it happened like 15 times. It was a lot. It wasn't just a one-off or a couple times. It was like a regular thing. This is how they were communicating to each other. I'm right. Probably for drugs, but maybe also for other things. I'm fucking, I'm Googling and I don't see anything. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I So, yeah. So somebody out there at me and tell me what Garfield means. <laughs> I told you this, like, it was, I, I was just telling my partner about this the other day. We were walking down the street and I was like, yeah, babe, I remember this time when I had like a bunch of fucking young millennials tell me that I'm too old to understand the internet. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, I grew up when it started, you know, like, like, yeah, like I understand the internet. Like, you don't even fucking know what AIM is, okay? So get off my fucking back, bro. You you don't understand the internet. And then, like, as I've gotten older, I increasingly get what they meant. I don't think I understand what the... Oh, yeah. They're totally, totally right. right. But then the weird thing is, is they're now, like, late 20s, you know? And so they probably don't understand what the internet is because the Zoomers are what? Like, what is that? Like, 22 and under <laughs> or some shit like that? They're, like, they're doing fucking... Garfield at a concert and what the fuck is happening, you know, and it probably triggered a thousand other messages that created this massive network all across the country of people like engaged in a singular activity <laughs> because one person fucking held up a cat that's 50 years old that they weren't even around for when it was first invented and they've appropriated this thing <laughs> and I don't understand. It's crazy, man. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. Now I need to know. I know, man. I've been thinking about this every day <laughs> since it happened. What does Garfield mean? I need somebody well, to tell me. Have you asked any students? No, I'm worried but about yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they probably wouldn't want to tell me if they knew. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Mm. Best that I don't know, given my position. That is a very good point. Okay.
Not that I would ever, not that I would ever narc. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. But still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let 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 them have their secrets and their fun at the concerts. And uh, <laughs> oh gosh, and you know what's so funny? I sometimes do you ever have conversations with like people that are in like their sixties or something like that? And do you ever just pause sometimes and you say, "Oh, like just the very way they think is different from the way that I think." Like, like I sometimes think this about like my like family members, right? I'm like, like they don't even get like ironic humor in the way that some people would, right? Like it's just because they're just either too sincere yeah. or like they don't quite get just like the play of like irony, 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 irony back and forth and like how people might just play a game and for them and then you're like, oh yeah, it's kind of a joke. And they're like, oh, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. I, you know, but like they're just not on it. Like I, I, I notice that sometimes and it's partly like a generational gap too, but it's also just like, I guess what kind of conversations you engage in and what kind of media you consume, et cetera. But I definitely feel over the last couple of years, I can feel myself becoming that person that is like naive. Like, like when I'm like, wait, I, I need someone to explain <laughs> this for me. Like I can see myself from the perspective of like the other person looking at me in the same way that I look at maybe like my, my parents or something like that. We're like, oh, you just don't get it. Like, I feel like, oh, I just don't get it. Like that's, I can, I can actually admit that about myself. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I am actually okay with that. I don't have therapy session. Let it yeah, all yeah. out. I don't have like FOMO like that. I'm like missing out on, I'm, this kind of goes back to even like my shitty minute. Like I'm okay with, with not being caught up in like the thing, you know, like I'm becoming more and more okay with it too. As I get older. Yeah, I mean, you're you're like uh, a whole bunch older than me, so I feel like I'm gonna still stay in my uh, naivete about my self understanding for a little while. But eventually, I think I'm gonna get there too. Once we hit the big four zero, dude, I feel like you got to start. You gotta, I'm not there yet, but it's fucking rapidly approaching, and I feel like you got to start. Re, you got to start <laughs> rethinking things, man. You gotta you gotta just accept aging. That's the thing. That's what I'm accepting aging. You know, like it's weird. It's weird, but at the same time, I'm kind of like, yeah, man, I'm kind of, I'm kind of looking forward to it. Like, I feel like when you're younger, you're so caught up in like being in stuff, you know, and academia, academia is bad for this too. Cause it, it creates a similar sort of like frantic desire, but in a different context, like you got to know fucking everything, right? Like, oh, it's the new trend, the new thing where I'm kind of like, you know what I want to do? I want to just spend a year reading like one book. And just that's it. That's it. You know, that I kind of want to do that. Like, let's just spend a year going through Kant's critique. You want to like his first critique. Let's just do it. You and I. And we'll just do like. I've already done that, dude. I can do it again. <laughs> let's, you know, or like, let's just read fucking. Let's just read like Leibniz's monadology. And let's just take six months to just go through it and just like take our time. And let's just not worry about what new article was written <laughs> or what new reading of Leibniz. But let's just like – let's just sit there and just read it and take our time. And let's just be old. And let's just be slow. And that's fine. You know? <laughs> I, I think we we definitely um, satisfy the condition of being slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. On this podcast. Like we, 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 we express and manifest uh, – that perfectly well. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's we're not doing quick critiques <laughs> here. Yeah, that's true. 
All right. Um, well, if you know anything about what the fuck Garfield means, please let us know. Uh, you can tweet us, uh, owls underscore at underscore dawn. And, of course, you can find both Troy and I individually online as well. Um, thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks, patrons, for selecting these two cool topics, Job, and then this one for this episode. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun to kind of delve into that. And uh, we'll be announcing a new patron, um, patron-led patron episode for, like, a fielding of, of, of options probably in the next week or so. Um, so get your ideas together for what you would like us to uh, pull apart in a future uh, episode uh for now i think we're gonna get out of here like i said hit us up on twitter owls underscore at underscore dawn uh hit us up on patreon patreon.com slash owls at dawn and throw us some pennies if you can support the show other than that i think we've said pretty much everything there is to say unless there's anything i'm forgetting just one more thing i can think of dude what's that das the dami americanski 